I have found out beat news in depth for you. Good evening and welcome to Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, if you know Bay Area LGBT history, then you already know the name Cleve Jones. He came to San Francisco as a young boy and grew up with mentors like Harvey Milk, who inspired him to become an activist. Cleve has been in the eye of the civil rights movement at some of its most important moments, and he shares his experience and his life in a new memoir coming out this Tuesday. Earlier this month, I sat down with Cleve at his home in the Castro to talk about some of the amazing people he's met and about the experiences that shaped his life. And on this special on-demand edition of tonight's show, we'll also talk with our good friend Nathan Mansky. He's the founder of I'mFromDriftwood.com, and he has a brand new program I think you'll find interesting. All of this is coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, November 27th, 2016. I have found Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. If you turned on the news 38 years ago today, here's likely the first story you would have heard. Good evening. George Moscone, the, the mayor of San Francisco, was shot dead in his office in City Hall this morning. So was Harvey Milk, a city supervisor. Both shot, both murdered. Apparently there was no connection here with the Jim Jones cult, which is based in San Francisco. The police arrested Dan White, a one-time city supervisor who had resigned and wanted Moscone to reappoint him, but he had not agreed to do so. Here's Rick Davis in San Francisco. This single bouquet of flowers was on the steps of City Hall. It was placed under the mayor's window just a few moments after the death of Mayor George Moscone. The flags were at half-staff moments later, as the city learned that the mayor and supervisor Harvey Milk had been murdered. When word of the deaths first came down, first thoughts were of the People's Temple story. Reports that there was an assassination squad with a hit list naming city politicians. But it was not that. It was city politics gone mad. This is former supervisor Dan White a few weeks ago on the day he resigned from office, saying the job didn't pay enough to support his family. Later, White changed his mind and wanted his job back. But Mayor Moscone was about to appoint someone else today. Dan White was a former police officer and fireman. Today at 11 a.m., he went to City Hall to the office of the mayor and shot and killed him, according to witnesses. Witnesses say after killing the mayor, White ran down the hall and fired three shots at Melk, killing him. Melk had opposed the reappointment of White. In the total confusion after the shooting, the president of the Board of Supervisors, Diane Feinstein, spoke. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. You'll hear more about Harvey Milk from our special guest on tonight's show. Now here's your calendar of events for the coming week. On Monday, November 28th at 7 p.m., the Parents of Trans Youth will meet at the Positive Images Center, 312 Chin Street in Santa Rosa. On Tuesday through Friday this week from 1 to 4 p.m., rapid free HIV testing is available at Face to Face, 873 2nd Street in Santa Rosa. And on Tuesday, November 29th at 1.30 p.m., the Santa Rosa Senior Group will meet at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation at the Glacier Center in Santa Rosa. 
And also on Tuesday at 6 p.m., the trans youth group male to female and female to male will meet at the Positive Images Center, 312 Chin Street in Santa Rosa. And finally, on Wednesday, November 30th at 12 noon, the Petaluma LGBT support group will gather at Casa Grande High School in Petaluma. This is a group for youth 12 to 18 years of age. For more information about LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. And for all the latest LGBT news headlines, go to our website at OutBeatNews.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for updates from OutBeat Radio News all week long. For Gary Carnavelli, I'm Greg Moralia. OutBeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. When We Rise is a new book written by Cleve Jones about his life and experiences at the center of the LGBT civil rights movement. Earlier this month, I had the opportunity to sit with Cleve at his home in the Castro. He's quite a remarkable man. Well, Cleve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be back. Wonderful to have you, and I'm very excited about this new book. So tell us what was the impetus for you to to write. Well, I actually uh, started thinking seriously about writing this uh, I think it was the first day of the Proposition 8 trial in Judge Von Walker's court here in San Francisco. And uh, it had been a long day. And when the proceedings were over, I took Rob Reiner and his wife, Michelle, for a walk through the Castro. And as we were walking, I, of course, was talking and telling them all my stories. And Rob Reiner at one point stopped me and he said, you have to write a book. And I think if Rob Reiner tells one to write a book, one better write a book. So I did. (laughs) <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, and I think the book has so much history in it. I mean, it's going to be a wonderful read, not only for getting to know you, but also really learning the amazing history that was going on in the, in the 60s and then particularly in the 70s here in the Castro. And you grew up in a time when being gay was illegal and, and really worse. How did you navigate that through your teen years? Well, I almost didn't survive that period. And I think, you know, we look at the young people today that are still taking their own lives. This remains an issue for our people, certainly. But back then, there was just so little information. And it really was possible, as I say in the book, to to, uh, be a teenager and not know that there was, in fact, anybody else on the whole planet that was experiencing what you were experiencing and feeling what you were feeling. So it was very, very isolating. And then uh, on those rare occasions when one did hear a reference to homosexuality, it was always in not just negative terms, but in terms of damnation or mental illness or incarceration. I can't even imagine what that was like. You write, though, about how your participation as a Quaker helped you. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I was fortunate in uh, my, my Quaker background uh, shielded me from the more hateful aspects of Christian fundamentalism. But also the Quakers were very involved in the anti-war movement. This was during the Vietnam era. And so I became very active in the movement. And really this book is about my relationship to the movement. And I really do owe my life to the movement. Uh, and I, I try to... Uh, I've, I've tried to write not so much a history, but just stories that illustrate how the movement changed my life, saved my life, how it changed the lives of all sorts of people, including the majority of us who don't think of ourselves as political at all. And that's what I hope to convey. 
And certainly you changed the lives of people like me who came out after uh, and, and have made it a lot easier. You've met some really amazing people in your journey, uh, a lot of local heroes and activists. Uh, two that stuck out to me as I was reading uh, were Phyllis Lyons and Del Martins. Talk about their role in your life. I met Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon in um, the summer of 1972 uh, in the Bay Area over in Moraga at a Quaker uh, yearly gathering called Pacific Yearly Meeting. And there was a, a Quaker couple named Ron Bentley and Gary Miller who had been active in uh, one of the early organizations here, the Council on Religion and the Homosexual. And they knew Del and Phyllis and invited them to speak. And I was just so amazed by them. And I think, uh, you know, when I think back, it wasn't just the force of their personalities, but also what feminism could mean to gay men. This idea that your biology was not your destiny, that regardless of your uh, gender, you, you, you know, we should be free to love as we choose and dress as we choose and work in the jobs we want to work in, and that gender should not be a, a, a limitation. And so... For my generation of, of gay men, particularly radical gay men, feminism was really sort of the bedrock uh, of our, uh, our philosophical approach to the issue. But also Dell and Phyllis were just amazing and so passionate and uh, just really had a huge impact on, on me years and years before I would meet Harvey Milk. I love the piece where you were in the cafe and you met Sylvester. It was when you first got to San Francisco. Tell us a little bit about that experience. It was a place called The Haven, and I'd be really curious if any of your listeners uh, remember The Haven restaurant at uh, the corner of Polk in California. But uh, everybody would go there after the bars closed at 2 o'clock in the morning to get omelets and coffee, and, and as I write in the book, and anything else you might want to buy in the men's room in the basement. And uh, it was quite the scene. And my first nights in San Francisco, I had no money at all. I was pretty much living on the street. And I would go to the Haven. And uh, my very first night, I met Sylvester. I also met a young man named Rick Dillenbach, who's still a friend of mine. Uh, I saw him just recently. But it was uh, really a, a very, very exciting time. And people, I think, forget... Um, the, the gay scene here is, is so much less than what it used to be. And back then, the center of the known gay universe was Polk Street. And today you go there and there's almost no evidence whatsoever that this was once a thriving uh, gay community. But it was pretty wild and I had a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and so from Polk Street, uh, this neighborhood in the Castro emerged. And you were part of that. You moved up here, right, with, with the rest. Talk about that. How did that all sort of unfold? A lot of people incorrectly say that what happened in the 70s with gay people coming to the Castro is comparable to what's happening now with the invasion of the very wealthy, uh, mostly tech people who are displacing current residents. And that's really not true. The population of San Francisco was declining uh, until the 80s. And th this neighborhood was pretty shabby. It was kind of run down. It had been mostly Irish and Scandinavian working class families who were moving out. They were moving out to the sunset. They were moving to San Mateo County, up to Marin, as their families grew and as they climbed up the economic ladder. 
So housing was relatively affordable here. It also has a most wonderful microclimate. You know, they say there's 17 different climates in the city of San Francisco. And because of our position here just uh, east of the hills of Twin Peaks, uh, it tends to be warmer and sunnier here. And there's also lots of uh, big Victorians with these kinds of railroad flats, and they were ideal for groups of people who were living together. So we would pile three, four, five, six guys into a flat, and uh, in a relatively short period of time, pretty much took over the entire neighborhood, <laughs> much to the economic benefit of the previous inhabitants, I should say. Absolutely, and of course made it absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Well, the 60s and 70s were really, you know, a tumultuous time in, in many respects. You know, there's Nixon and, and all the very multiple layers of the civil rights movement. In the book, you talk about the struggles faced by the gay rights movement and how they're really the same today. I mean, you make some correlations uh, around that. Tell us more. Well, the movement has changed and grown, of course, and the community has changed and grown. But one of the things that has remained a constant for each generation is this conflict, this internal conflict about who we are and what we are. And I think that this is really uh, uh, peculiar to the gay community. Uh, And when I say gay, of course, that's shorthand for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender. I think we're all part of the same community, same movement. Um, Other minorities will occasionally have uh, debates about what is the correct terminology. And when, when we look at... For example, uh, people of African descent, uh, just in my lifetime, the politically correct term for such people has changed over the years. So words that were considered perfectly acceptable and polite when I was young in the 1960s are really anachronistic, if not offensive, today. But within LGBT people, there's a much different kind of debate. And really what it boils down to is, are we really just like heterosexuals in every respect except for what we do in bed? Or are we a queer people? Are we a people? Are we, do we have revolutionary potential uh, because of our queerness? And Harry Hay, who started the Radical Fairies, and I, I, paraphr- I paraphrase him poorly, I'm afraid, in the book, but... Something to the effect that some people say gay people are just like straight people, except for what we do in bed. I think that what we do in bed is just like what they do, really, but we're different in every other way. And so every generation has had its own vocabulary with which to engage in this debate, but every generation has struggled and fought with this. Uh, And I think that's a a sort of fascinating aspect of our people and our movement. Mm Mm-hmm. So as you think back, you know, to those times, the beginning of that 60s and 70s period, was marriage even a dream? Was it even a thought for you? The right to get married was simply one more item on a long list of rights and privileges that we were denied solely because of our sexual orientation. And also, I think many of us, uh, because of our sort of uh, roots within within the feminist movement, were skeptical of the institution and viewed it, I think, correctly as sort of, you know, part of the the, the patriarchy. Uh, so I think that it was not on many people's minds. But that was changed so dramatically uh, in the in the with the advent of the HIV pandemic because 
suddenly it became very clear that that little piece of paper uh, meant a whole lot more than some sort of vague uh, approval from the state. Uh, that little piece of paper uh, meant life or death. And that's not hyperbole. I'm not exaggerating. I know people who died because they could not get their partner's health insurance. And they would not have had that experience if they were heterosexual and been able to marry. So I think that uh, when AIDS came, uh, we came to understand the legal importance of marriage as an institution. And then some people I know listening will probably say, well, you know, the the whole institution is is stupid and should be done away with. And and it's wrong that access to health care should be determined by marriage. Well, of course, that's wrong, but it's the way it is for now. And I don't see it changing at any point soon. I don't see why we should have to wait for it to change. So there was that aspect. But then another thing that happened was that when AIDS came, um, it really tested us. It tested our relationships, our our love relationships, our friendships. It it tested every aspect of what we think of when we think of community. And I would say, I I think I would go as far as to say that before AIDS, uh, the notion of an LGBT community was really that. It was a notion. We were a subculture. We were struggling to find common ground and, and build some kind of identity around it. But AIDS tested us. And I think one thing that happened across uh, all, uh, you know, the whole spectrum of our community was that after going through that, people looked at their own relationships and, and the, the relationships around them and said, what do you mean this isn't a marriage? After what we've been through, after all the nights waiting in the hospital, after changing the bedpans and measuring out the medications and going to these funerals, you know, what do you mean this isn't a marriage? You know, to hell with you. This is exactly what a marriage is. That is a marriage. This is a community. And so I I say in the book that I think a lot of our progress, especially on the, the marriage equality front, really has its roots in our experience with the pandemic. And after that, you know, it was not no longer tolerable uh, to be relegated to this second class citizenship. Sort of the ultimate test, right, of those vows. Well, one of the many amazing people you met in your life uh, and, and obviously who had a huge impact on you was Harvey Milk. Talk a little bit about uh, meeting him and working with him. Well, you know, my meeting Harvey Milk has been fictionalized so much at this point. I, I think everybody probably has their own idea of what happened. I don't actually remember when I first met him. Um, he was sort of a character. You know, this is a city of neighborhoods and every neighborhood has its characters. And Harvey, after a very short amount of time here, became quite a character. And when I first met him, he still had long hair and was kind of a hippie. And I thought he was amusing and fun to talk with, but I didn't take him seriously as a political leader at all. I started hitchhiking after a while, and I would correspond with him as I was hitchhiking around Europe and the Middle East. And But when I came back in in 77 and we were getting ready for the Briggs Initiative, he had changed. He'd become a real leader and cut his hair and bought a cheap suit. And at that point, I was not speaking to my own father. And Harvey uh, very definitely was sort of a, a, a parent figure for me. I was one of many young people 
boys and girls, gay and straight, that he mentored. He was, I think, probably the first adult to tell me that I had value as my true self. My parents would say that I had value that could only be realized if I would come home and go through, you know, electroconvulsive shock treatment or whatever and become heterosexual. And I knew that that was not possible. Uh, and Harvey was the one who said, you are, have value just as you are. Wow. Wow. That must have given you a great sense of peace. Were there other events that inspired you, that motivated you to become the activist, to, to really get involved? I mean, you traveled around a lot. You, lot. you did a lot of different things. Was there a particular event, you know, got a grip on you and said, you know, you know what, I've got to get involved and start making change? I always enjoyed the, really the sort of mechanical aspects of organizing, setting up the telephone tree, figuring out the press release, um, figuring out where to put the cameras to get the best shot. All of that kind of stuff intrigued me. I'm a product of the television age. Um, I grew up addicted to TV news. Um, and I grew up in a family that believed in progressive ideals and honored people like Dr. King and Cesar Chavez. Um, so I, I always enjoyed the work and felt that I you know, could contribute in some way. But of course, it was the, the murder of Harvey. On that day, I knew that this was going to be what I did for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Well, you talk about, uh, you mentioned the Briggs Initiative already, and in the book you, you talk about the significance of the rallies and then the marches as being a big part of that strategy. Tell us about the disaster march route. <laughs> so um, the marches were, there, there were many layers to what we were trying to do with the marches. One had to do with this neighborhood where we're sitting right now for this interview is two blocks from the corner of Castro and 18th Street. And as more and more gay people moved to the neighborhood and as our political power grew, we wanted to solidify that and we wanted people to have a sense of ownership, to know that this was their place. And so we wanted people to know that whenever there was a disaster, a calamity, whether somebody was beaten to death, uh, like Robert Hillsborough, or if we had our rights taken away at the ballot box, like in Dade County or Wichita or St. Paul or Eugene, that... We wanted people to know that they didn't need to wait for the, to see the flyer or get the phone call, that they were to go to Castro and 18th Street and get ready to raise hell. Um, it was also about uh, sending the images of strength out in the national media because so many people, uh, not just young people, but especially young people, were growing up in these horrendously homophobic environments. We wanted them to hear of the movement. And so part of doing that was getting that 20-second clip on the CBS Evening News. And so uh, a whole lot of what we did then was just about visibility because it was so easy for people to completely ignore us and ignore the issue. And we also knew that once people started thinking about the issue, eventually we, we would win. And that was something you know Harvey kept saying to everybody about why it was important to come out. Uh, but the disaster march route would start at the corner of Castro and Market with whistles blowing and sirens. And then we would march, the, I don't know, two miles down Market Street to City Hall. We would turn left on Polk Street, march past City Hall. We would go all the way up Polk Street to California. And then we would climb up 
Knob Hill to the very tip top of, of Knob Hill and do a circle around Grace Cathedral and then go stampeding down Powell Street to fill Union Square and freak out all the tourists that were shopping at Macy's. And um, at that point, people would usually be too tired to think about fighting the cops or breaking windows or setting a bank on fire. <laughs> So let's talk about the rainbow flag, because you were there for its birth with uh, Hank Wilson and, of course, the amazing Gilbert Baker. Tell us about that experience. I mean, the first flag was made literally with some dye and some strips of fabric. There had been a number of conversations going on for a while about what could be a unifying symbol that would bring all of us together, lesbians, gay men, bisexuals, the people we now call transgender uh, and all the different uh, factions and fragments of the community. The symbols that were used at the time were, of course, the, the, the lambda, the Greek letter L, uh, which seemed very obscure and never was very clear to anybody what that actually meant or why it was just, you know, going to represent us. Uh, I've read many different accounts of how that came to be and still don't really quite get it. Um, But it was in common use uh, in the late 60s, early 1970s, and you still see it every now and then. The other symbol, of course, was the pink triangle, which came from the Nazi death camps. And while it was a very powerful symbol, its power for me lay in the horror of it. And also, you know, I remember seeing that first photograph of the charts uh, of the the symbols that the Nazis used in the death camps and the different categories of people, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Gypsies and the Jews. And, and, um, you know, it had, it was powerful, but it was also horrible. And uh, so we felt that we needed a new symbol. This was something that was talked about a lot. And Gilbert, who was always a, a dramatic personality, um, announced with some drama that, you know, he'd come up with this idea. And I actually got to help him dye the fabric. The original rainbow flag had eight bars of color, not six. And um, it was uh, put together at the old uh, community center, 330 Grove, which is now the Performing Arts Center parking garage. And it was quite a mess. But, uh, you know, when we raised them up. Uh, There were two flags. There was a a simple rainbow flag with eight bars, and then there was a rainbow American flag with a field of not 50 stars, but sort of tie-dyed white bursts in the field there. You know, it was pretty hippy-dippy. But Gilbert was there and uh, pulled the ropes and raised them up, and the wind caught them, and they billowed out, and they were just spectacular. And then we watched as thousands and thousands of people walked between those two flagpoles off from Market Street up into Civic Center Plaza. And you could just see everybody looking up and their jaw dropping and then that mo- that recognition and that understanding, this is us, this is our symbol, this is our flag. And Gilbert himself has spoken many times uh, about how he knew at that moment that that was his life's work right there and that nothing that would follow would, you know, equal the the significance of that one brilliant idea. And 
the execution of it. You know, it's one thing. To, uh, you know, I've got a million great ideas every day. You know, do I make them happen? <laughs> Not very many. Uh, but he had the the strength of character and the determination and the stubbornness and uh, was a fierce enough queen to make it real. And it's such a powerful symbol today. I mean, in some parts of the world, it can land you in prison. It's such an important and powerful symbol. And it, uh, it certainly is a big part of people's identities. It, it, it signals affirmation and welcoming and uh, it's it's incredible. Did you did you have that vision back then? Did you see that it was going to become such a powerful oh, force? I, or what did you think? I, no, I, I thought it was genius from the get go. When he, I, I as my, you know, he had drawings, and for your listeners who can visualize the two giant flagpoles at UN Plaza, which is just where you turn off Market Street into Civic Center. I saw when when he showed me the drawings, I understood the power of it, but not until I first saw them unfurled there. Uh, but then it was, I knew. <laughs> I, I can't even imagine how dramatic and, and how powerful the must have felt. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News in Depth on KRCB Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia. I'm here in the Castro in San Francisco at the home of Cleve Jones talking about his new book, When We Rise. I'd like to go back, though, for a second to uh, what must have been an, an unimaginable day when Harvey and George Moscone were murdered. Does that day still haunt you? I have thought about that day um, probably every day since. Um, it was the hardest. It's a very short chapter in my book, but it was the most difficult to write. And I think it was the last thing I actually wrote. I kept putting it off. Uh, Harvey was very much a father figure to me. He was the leader of our movement. Um, also, you know, I was very young. I had never seen a dead person before. I've seen many since. Mm-hmm. But that um, was very horrifying. Um, looking back at it now, I think I, I was in shock for, for months afterwards. I think I had some kind of... PTSD or or something. I I have very few memories of the months that followed the murders. Uh, Just so horrifying. But also, I understood the historic significance of it immediately. Even as they were bundling up his body, I knew that part of what I was going to do for the rest of my life was to keep his name alive. And I made that promise, and there were many of us that night who made that promise together, that for the rest of our lives we would do whatever we could, wherever we were, to make sure that Harvey's life uh, was known. Um, it, you know, it might seem that that would be an easy task, but it wasn't. People were forgetting him, partly because the AIDS epidemic took away so many of our generation. Uh, I believe over half of the gay men of my age were, were killed, so those stories got lost along with, with people. And um, I was on the lecture circuit. Uh, you know, I would go to colleges and I would ask before I began my speech, how many of you know who Harvey Milk was? And sometimes a few hands might go up. But oftentimes not a single person in the room would know who he was. And then those of us who had committed ourselves to get schools named after him and plazas named after him and statues created and all of those things 
we began to die off. Um, so uh, it wasn't really until the film came out that Harvey's place in history was, was secured. Well, 1981 was a pretty life-changing year. Uh, I remember I was, uh, I was just graduating from high school. I was just beginning to secretly uh, explore who I was. And I remember hearing about and reading the stories about this strange disease that was impacting gay men. And I didn't, I didn't identify as being gay then, but I, I knew that this was a dangerous time. I was working for a police department at the time. I remember the panic that we all had. Uh, I remember sitting in a briefing, in a training, and we were all issued gloves and masks, and we were told, anytime you have any contact with someone you even think is gay, put these masks and gloves on. And I remember thinking, oh, my God. Uh, what was it like for you when you first heard about this? I mean, you were here. Well, I read about it, that first uh, report in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report from the Centers for Disease Control. I was working for the State Assembly at that point, and I was assigned to the Health Committee. Uh, and I, I clipped it out, you know, it caught my attention. And then shortly after that, I met Dr. Marcus Conant. Uh, he was here at the University of California, San Francisco, a dermatologist who saw many of those first cases with uh, Kaposi's sarcoma. And it's in the book, I believe, uh, we had dinner, and he told me that he thought it was a new virus, sexually transmitted, fatal, and uh, possibly with a long dormancy period. And uh, I knew right away that that meant calamity. Uh, I did not expect to survive. I almost did not. I lost almost everyone I loved the most. By 1985, almost everyone I knew was dead or dying or home caring for someone who was dying. Uh, I came very close to death a couple of times. But, uh, you know, you don't want to say that anything good comes out of something so horrible, but uh, we're a stronger people, having gone through that. We're a better country, and it's very easy to focus on all the stupid things that happened and the cruel things that happened. And there were many stupid, cruel things that happened. And uh, they should not be forgotten. But it should also be remembered that, uh, by and large, the American people uh, educated themselves and found compassion and love within their hearts and within their neighborhoods and communities. And... That was a big part of the, the quilt's message. When I started the AIDS Memorial Quilt, that happened the same year as ACT UP. And so on the one hand, you have ACT UP with all the rage and the, the justifiable fury at Reagan and the incredible lack of response from the government and the greed of the pharmaceutical industry. But I, I knew that a movement could not sustain itself on anger alone. And I also knew that my grandmothers loved me. And my grandmothers would do anything to save my life, including giving their own. And that's not hyperbole either. You know, they would. And I thought, you know, my grandmothers aren't going to put on uh, black leather bomber jackets and Doc Martens and storm the NIH or Wall Street, but they want to help. They want to be part of this. And if I die of this, they will be the ones who grieve the most. Uh, and so I wanted to a place in the movement for the grandmothers and all of the others who uh, could not or would not do the, the kind of actions that ACT UP was doing. So where did the idea for the quilt come from? 
The story that I have told probably the most in my life is the story of getting the idea of the quilt. And it is, of course, related to Harvey Milk because Harvey and George were shot on November 27th, 1978. There was a massive candlelight march that night that uh, is remembered every year on that date. And uh, they were quite large marches for many decades. On November 27, 1985, as we were marching uh, that morning, the San Francisco Chronicle headline said that a 1,000 San Franciscans had already died of AIDS. And I was standing at the corner of Castro and Market and just very aware that of those first 1,000 to die, almost all of them had lived and died within really eight blocks of where I was standing, and there was no evidence you know, you see the beautiful Victorians and you smell coffee and food and hear music and laughter and uh, you have no idea really that you're at the epicenter of this horrendous tragedy that uh, was only getting worse. And I just got kind of obsessed with this lack of evidence. And then the way we were compartmentalized into demographic subsets and you'd hear, you know, the percentage of hemophiliacs or homosexuals or... Uh, IV drug users and it was, you know, there were people behind those statistics, there were families behind those statistics and I wanted to try to show the humanity behind those numbers and uh, so that night, November 27th 1985, I had stacks of poster board as we gathered at what is now called Harvey Milk Plaza Castro and Market and I had Harvey Milk's old bullhorn uh, which I still own and um, I encouraged people to write the names of their neighbors and co-workers and lovers and friends, and they did. And we carried those signs with our candles down to City Hall, and then I had everybody get to go another block to the old federal building at UN Plaza, where the rainbow flag first was raised. And uh, we had some ladders hidden in the shrubbery nearby, and distracted the police and climbed up and with big rolls of tape covered the facade of this building with these this patchwork of names. And I looked at it and thought, well, quilt. And when I say the word quilt, I think of my grandma and my great-grandma back in Bee Ridge, Indiana. And I think of the pioneer women making camp by the Conestoga wagons or the, you know, the, the African enslaved Africans in the South hoarding bits of fabric and sewing them together to create things of comfort and warmth and the symbolism of different colors and different textures and of, of, of fabric that had been discarded and not seen as useful or valued all, you know, the symbolism just worked so well. And then I also thought that it would be healing, uh, a healing experience for people to uh, to tell stories about their loved ones who'd passed while working with their hands to create these little works of art. I thought it could be a weapon to deploy against the freaking politicians who weren't doing anything. You know, let's show them the consequence of their failures. And I thought it would be a, a brilliant tool for the media to help the media help the people understand that these were ordinary human beings just like them who were part of neighborhoods, part of families, part of communities that had lives that had value. And I, I think that is the, the, the truly radical statement that the quilt makes, which is that all of these lives have value. 
Well, I'll tell you, just uh, from my own experience, walking some students by to see pieces of the quilt when it's been on exhibit uh, here in the Castro. I took a police academy class through several years ago. It was in a, maybe it was the old record store on Market Street. I don't remember what it used to be there, but they had pieces of the quilt hanging in, on the floor, and a lot of the students had no idea the scope and magnitude of the crisis. There was hardly a person that walked out of there without tears in their eyes, just from experiencing being there and seeing that. So I think everything you've said has come true with it. It's, I mean, it's really quite remarkable. Let's talk about Guerneville. Uh, up in Sonoma County, where we're from, you talk about uh, that in your life. What, what are some of the events, some of the time periods there that stand out for you in Guerneville? <laughs> well, uh, many of them I don't believe can be recounted on the air. <laughs> but I first started going up to the river in the early 1970s when it was quite a wild scene. And uh, back then it was out by Waller Bridge. And on a sunny weekend, there would be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of naked gay men up there. And uh, Guerneville was sort of like Castro Street North. There was also a lot of, uh, there was a strong lesbian community up there as well. And so my first memories of the river of hitchhiking up from San Francisco and getting to Santa Rosa and... uh, you know, I don't think I ever stuck out my thumb for more than five minutes on River Road before I got a ride down to Guerneville. And, and also, um, I just fell in love with Goat Rock Beach, um, Jenner, uh, that whole area where the river uh, hits the ocean. It's just so beautiful and happily really unchanged uh, all these years later. The redwood trees, of course. Um, then when AIDS came... Um, the community up there was almost completely wiped out. Uh, it, the, the losses there were, were terrible, and many of the uh, establishments that had been uh, that had an LGBT clientele uh, reverted to, to straight. But I went back there when I got sick. Uh, I got sick in '93, uh, and. I did not want to be in San Francisco. I didn't want people to see me looking the way I looked. I, was, uh, I wasn't embarrassed or ashamed. I was just depressed. I, I, and I looked bad, and I didn't want people to see that. I didn't want pity. Um, and more importantly, I didn't want to be evicted. And uh, this is an issue even, you know, that's even greater uh, in the city today with so many people with HIV. Uh, long-term survivors are being evicted now. So I, I went up there, and my family all pitched in and gave me enough for a down payment on a little cabin in Villa Grande, which is uh, between Monte Rio and Duncan's Mills off Moscow Road. And so I bought this little cabin there in which I expected to die. And um, found community and found new medicine, and found the will to live. So uh, whenever I think of Sonoma County, uh, I always uh, am flooded with really wonderful memories. And I write about my crazy bunch of friends there, uh, most of whom did not survive, but it, it still makes me smile and... When I, write, when, when I was writing about that, I, I, I wanted to sort of convey how 
the gay sensibility, um, how much strength we find in humor. And when you get a bunch of gay men together, you know, you can give us the most frightful challenge you could imagine. You could throw the most horrible challenges our way and we will uh, deal with it with flair and panache. (laughs) 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 And usually quite a bit of drama and glitter. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Guerneville is a really amazing place. And you talk about a new life uh, beginning with Prop 8 in 2008. Talk about that a little bit. Well, so I, I started feeling better in... I, I got onto some new meds in uh, 94, and by 95, 96, I was gradually getting my strength back. Uh, it never got all of it back, but I began to believe that I wasn't going to you know, die next week. And... Uh, but I kept getting pneumonia, and we'd had a series of really bad winters up in Sonoma County, and the, lots of floods, and my house never flooded, but uh, the dampness was not good for my lungs. So I moved to Palm Springs, which also had affordable housing, and I bought a little house down there, but I felt very estranged from the gay community. And the new generation that came up immediately after mine uh, really didn't want anything to do with my generation. And it's understandable. I don't blame them. They looked at us with our gaunt faces and our bodies that had been so damaged by the virus and the medications, and they were horrified. And so uh, they really kind of turned their back on us. I feel that, and I've heard that from other men my age, Mm -hmm. that we felt a bit abandoned and discarded, uh, which was very disheartening after what we had been through and what we had accomplished So I felt very disconnected from younger people. I felt, uh, when I turned 40, I I felt like I had turned 90. I just felt like I was old and I was done and that I had little use. I I, I was of no use to the movement or the community and that love, uh, was not going to happen again and... I was very depressed, I would say. And then, then Milk happened, and I met Dustin Lance Black and introduced him to Gus Van Sant, who I'd known for years, and they made the movie. And suddenly, uh, all these young people in their 20s now, the, the next generation that were calling me and emailing me and reaching out. And I say in the book, it was a bit like being exhumed. You know, it was, it was like they dug up my old gay bones and were dusting them off and saying, well, my goodness, what's this? And what can we learn? Um, that fall, you know, you had three really amazing things happen. You had Barack Hussein Obama, elected president of the United States, And one can be as cynical as one wants to be about the president, and I am. uh, But still, I never thought I would see the day that a black man would be in the White House. That same election, the the voters of of California told the gay community that they were second-class citizens. And this new generation of young LGBT kids who thought they were equal um, got slapped in the face with the reality that a very significant majority of their fellow citizens did not share that opinion. And they were outraged and poured into the streets. And that same 
November, the film Milk was released. And uh, it's a beautiful film, and it was well-reviewed, and it was seen by really just about everyone in our community and, and, and our allies as well. So a younger generation, the younger generation became aware of a history they had not been taught in school and I think the older ones, like myself, were reminded of what we were fighting for in the 70s and how far we'd come and how far we still had to go. And, and just seeing, uh, you know, the story of Proposition 6, where we won a statewide election, we didn't have big black tie dinners, we didn't have million dollar media buys, we had people power. We went door to door and came out of the closet and we went to our neighbors and our co-workers and we said, I'm gay. Don't vote for this, please. It will hurt me. It will hurt my family. I beg you, do not vote for this. And, and we won. Uh, so uh, those three things, I think, opened a whole new chapter for the uh, history of the people now called LGBT uh, in our country today and indeed around the world. And uh, for me, it, the best part was just suddenly to be connected to young people who uh, were starting to do what I was doing when I was in my early 20s, which was to fight back against injustice and to find common ground and build solidarity and be smart and outrageous and determined and fearless. And it was, it was wonderful and remains uh, really the best part of my life today is feeling that connection to, and now a whole new generation that is coming up who are equal in the eyes of the law or almost almost so i'm curious do you feel a sense of carrying on harvey's tradition now you know you talk about this new generation of young people coming up and and you're talking with them and and educating them do you see yourself sort of in the role that harvey played with you as a mentor I, I, the word mentor, I, 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 you know, I, I hope I'm a good mentor. Uh, I'm grateful to the young people who populate my life. Uh, I'm very grateful for it. There are things I want to make sure they understand. And I think now that we are very close to achieving so many of our goals, uh, we, it's important to remember that we still have a long way to go just for our own issues, but that we were never... Uh, Harvey Milk and Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon and Jose Saria and all of the great pioneers of our community did not view what we were doing as an isolated, uh, specific, um, limited struggle. We saw our struggle as part of a broader, deeper struggle for peace and for social justice. Our roots are in the civil rights movement with Dr. King and Malcolm X and Cesar Chavez and the feminist movement and Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem and Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon and uh, Rita Mae Brown and Shirley Chisholm and... uh, and the anti-war movement, the, 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 the determination to end this, this terrible destruction that was being uh, inflicted on the Vietnamese people by the, by the U.S. military. And, and so uh, as we get closer to achieving our own goals for LGBT people, I, I want to constantly be reminding people, and even if it annoys them at some point, that it's not just about us and that... Uh, 
There are, there are issues where I think LGBT people can be leaders, can be bridge builders. And that gets back to something we talked about at the beginning of this, which is, are we unique or are we just like straight people? And I would say that one of the things that makes us unique is that we as queer people, as queer and trans people, exist in every color skin, in every kind of family. Uh, we're born into Hindu families and Baptist families and atheist families and communist families and rich families. And we're born in trailer parks and on, uh, you know, the, the, whole, uh, the whole range of, of humanity in every, every part of humanity have always existed, those people that are now called LGBT. And could we not then maybe be part of addressing those big huge problems of war and poverty and racism. You know, let us be the leaders in that. Let us say, we who exist in all these different places, we understand the value of human life. We celebrate all human life. We value it and we'll fight for it. So, uh, I, you know, it's a frustrating time for me in San Francisco and watching so many... Uh, uh, very privileged gay people who seem to have little concern for anyone other than themselves. And so I'm going to be a thorn in their side for as long as I'm alive. <laughs> Excellent. And you're involved in a lot of very uh, national issues now, too. My, my primary job these days is working within the labor movement. And I work for a union called Unite Here, which represents uh, just under 300,000 hospitality workers in the U.S. and Canada. And so when you think about the people that work in the hotels downtown and food courts in the airports and campuses, and, um, you know, these are mostly immigrants, mostly low-wage workers struggling for access to quality health care, uh, safe working conditions, affordable uh, housing, uh, living wages. So in my union, we are gay and straight and bi and trans, and we're... Uh, from Ethiopia and Eritrea and Costa Rica and Honduras and El Salvador and the Philippines and China. Uh, we, we're we a, a union of immigrants, and, but we don't uh, separate ourselves out. We don't, we don't have a gay caucus or a black caucus or a women's caucus. We've got a union where all the workers are fighting together for the rights of all the workers. And I think especially now as we see the gap between rich and poor grow so great. And when we, when we look at all the really uh, horrendous challenges facing this planet and the people who live on this planet, uh, I feel such gratitude for my union in particular as being an example of how people from many different backgrounds can work together uh, to find the solutions. But... I end the book, you know, talking about the fact that we are living in a very, very dangerous time. We have 65 million refugees on the planet right now, more than any time since the end of World War II. Uh, the glaciers are melting. Climate change is real. And the, the gap between rich and poor is growing deeper and wider every single day. And the political consequences of that paralyze us. So we have a political system that is awash in billions of dollars spent by the very wealthy top few to deny the rights and the needs of the vast overwhelming majority of people on this planet. So um, 
my tiny part of a small movement, I think, does offer some insight into how we can move forward and what are the strategies that might enable us to survive. A lot of work ahead. A lot of work ahead. Well, the book is called When We Rise. We'll have links on our website at outbeatnews.com where you can go and find out where to get this fabulous book. It is an amazing read. It's a wonderful history. And if you're from the Bay Area, you will, you will see all of the, the connections that are there. Cleve Jones, thank you so much for sharing a big part of your life uh, with us in this book. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. When We Rise is being produced as a television miniseries set to air on ABC this coming February. If you'd like to meet Cleve Jones in person and get a copy of his book signed by him, he'll be at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation building on Castro Street, just up from 18th in the city, this Saturday, December 3rd from 5 to 8 p.m. And we'll have a link to the book's website on our own page at outbeatnews.com. Like Cleve Jones, our next guest was also inspired by Harvey Milk. Nathan Mansky had the idea to create a website to document and share stories from the life experiences of LGBT people around the country. And he's back to our show to talk about a new project. Nathan, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be back. It's always great to talk with you. You've got such an amazing organization. But for our listeners who are not familiar with I'm From Driftwood, talk about its origin and the mission. Uh, I'm the founder of I'm From Driftwood, and it's an online archive of first-person LGBTQ stories. And uh, we started it in uh, March 2009, and really we're just a a storytelling organization. So we collect these stories uh, to help LGBTQ youth, uh, particularly in smaller towns, uh, feel not so alone. But after we launched it, we started getting so much feedback from people, not just in small towns, but in big cities, and not just youth, uh, but people of all ages, letting us know what the stories mean to them. And it, so now it kind of creates this sense of connectedness, of belonging, of relating, uh, but also understanding and acceptance of, of people that they, they didn't know about. Um, you know, for example, a lot of uh, gay and lesbian people have let me know how much they've learned about transgender people uh, mm-hmm. within the own community. So it's, it's kind of uh, the mission is, has really become that of uh, connectedness and understanding and, um, uh, and relating to each other. And if I remember the story right, your inspiration came from Harvey Milk. Yes, exactly. So I, I watched the film Milk in late 2008, and I was really moved by it. I had seen the documentary, uh, but this was the, the film uh, that was written by Dustin Lance Black um, and starring Sean Penn. And I saw the film, and the next morning after seeing the film, I was thinking about a photograph of Harvey Milk. And he's in the San Francisco Pride March, uh, sitting on the hood of a car. And he's holding this this really large sign that says, I'm from Woodmere, New York. And I was thinking about that. And I was like, why is Harvey Milk, who's known for you know being this big LGBT icon in, in the, the gayest city on earth in San Francisco, uh, why is he saying that he's from this town that no one has ever heard of uh, besides you know a few people in New York? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that meant to me as I was sitting here in New York City in Brooklyn, it sends a really strong message that that even like no matter where you are, what you're going through, you're not alone. Because I'm not from New York City. I'm from Driftwood, Texas. And I know that would have been a very comforting thought to me as a gay teenager growing up in a small town in Texas, um, that people like Harvey Milk, people who, um, you know, just that I'm not alone, that even people like Harvey Milk are not from these big cities. And 
I don't have to be in these big cities to know that I'm not alone. Fantastic. I love the local connection here, uh, being in the Bay Area with, uh, with I'm from Driftwood. And so you've been taking these stories, uh, these oral histories, uh, these coming out stories for about the last seven years now. Talk about the evolution that you've seen, particularly over the last couple of years uh, in the stories. Are they changing? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, to see how the stories change based on what's going on in the, in the world. Uh, and for a, a really good example is in uh, 2010, uh, we did a 50-state story tour, and we went to all 50 states collecting stories. And right in the middle of the story tour, uh, there was a whole lot of attention in the media about bullying. And, uh, you know, it was because of that. It was bullying and, and unfortunately, a lot of suicides. And because of that, like, It Gets Better was launched, and there was just you know, all this media attention about um, LGBT bullying. And sure enough, as we were collecting stories, a lot of people started sharing stories of bullying. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so it kind of feels like we have, because we're filming stories all the time. We, we publish a story every Wednesday. Uh, so we're constantly filming and producing more stories. Uh, so it kind of feels like we have our finger on the pulse of what uh, is relevant today and what people are thinking about today. And at the same time, though, you know, we don't want to, we're not a news organization, we're, we're an archive, and we're, we're collecting stories and preserving them uh, forever. Um, so it's, part of me doesn't want our stories to be timely, because timely is timely for a little while. Um, and that's it, you know, so, so I, I really try to ask people to share stories that are meaningful to them, and not something that's necessarily relevant to a certain time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is still interesting to, uh, kind of feel a little bit how the stories changed based on, you know, big, big current events. Sure. Sure. So what's, what's one of the stories that stands out to you that you've heard or seen in the last year? About two months ago, we, we published a story from somebody named Lucas and his story was about when he was, um, he wasn't even out. I think his dad just knew that he was gay. And he was watching some movies and getting getting ready to go out with some friends at home. His dad just, like, snapped and, you know, was very homophobic and said some really nasty things and ended up ripping the banister off the, the stairwell and chasing him around the house and then in the yard. Wow. Well, we have Lucas's story. Let's take a listen. Lucas Mandiera and I am from Greenville, South Carolina. When I was 15 years old, I was on spring break with my friends and we were down in Florida and my sister got a hold of me and she had told me that my father had found out something about me being gay, but he wouldn't tell her what it was, but it's something. So I finally got home, it was dark, I was walking towards the house and I can see my parents sitting in the dining room table through the windows. And I walk inside and as soon as I go in, they ask me to go in there and sit down. I sit down and my father says, do you have anything you want to tell me? I say no. And then he says, are you sure? Of course I say no. And then he said, what's this? And he pulls out this old uh, letter that I wrote an X that I had hidden under my bed. I look down at the letter and I I don't say anything. The, the first thing that he said that set me off is that he told me that I would rather you be a murderer and in, in, in jail than be a faggot. I remember it was, uh, it was a Saturday night. I was 16 years old 
and I'm downstairs with two of my friends and my sister. We're watching my best friend's wedding. Um, just getting ready, we're gonna go out to like the movies or something. And my father's upstairs drinking beers. In the middle of the movie, he starts punching the door until he punches the door in and he creates a hole in it. And then at the top of his lungs, he just starts screaming, I don't want any more faggots in my house. You need to get the fuck out. He starts walking down the stairs and there's a, a railing there that you hold on to when you go down the stairs. He actually ripped it off the wall and then he started to swing it at me. I remember running up the stairs into the backyard and he's chasing after me. My sister's chasing after him. Everybody's screaming and all I remember is I heard somebody screaming, call the police. Um, so somehow I run back into the house and um, I get on the phone, I call them. My father comes in, he sees me on the phone with them and I'm literally just crying for help and he drops the uh, banister and then he gets in his uh, van and he drives off. The cops come oh, about 15, 20 minutes later. They said that my father could get, um, he could get put in jail right away for domestic violence for at least 30 days. And of course I'm saying, just take him to jail, take him to jail, I want him to go. And um, they kept asking me, are you sure? Is this what you want? And, and they said, because this could, you know, he could lose his job, it will affect the rest of your family. And then I thought about it again and I realized that I'd rather just leave. I, I stayed with friends. Um, I'd, I've stayed in a couple of abandoned trailers. I slept in the car a couple times. One day, I was about 17 years old with my friends and we were watching this movie called Trick. And it was my first time actually watching a film about gay characters in New York. And I was watching it and I just fell in love with everybody. I'm like, oh my God, I wanna be there. That's where I wanna go. And so my friends came up with a plan and they sold a lot of their own things to raise money. And um, they helped me get rid of like my car and some other stuff. And then eventually I had two friends who drove me up here. I just had my two bags. I, I didn't have a, a pot to piss in. And um, I couldn't get any work. So I was a go-go boy for a while. Um, I, I started working in construction, painting. Here's $50, move my stuff off Craigslist, just whatever. And, and there were some other things that I did that I'm not so proud of. Um, and then finally, I, I met my ex, Jeff, and um, I met him when I was go-going. Long story short, we started dating, um, and he told me that I, you know, that I am worth something else and that I shouldn't be doing this and I should just start looking for a regular job. So finally, I actually stopped being a go-go boy, and then I was working as a janitor. I got laid off and I'm laying there in bed with Jeff and, and just telling him, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I literally just got laid off. I don't have any skill sets. I don't have a degree. And he says, why don't you just work in catering and events? So I got a job working in an office, just helping them out and, and you know started to learn more about that. And then one day I was telling Jeff about the business and everything and he literally sat me down. He said, Lucas, you're so much smarter than what you think you are that why don't you consider starting uh, an event staffing agency. I started working in, in catering more and I started my company and everything just kind of took off and, and, and went from there. So I didn't speak to my father for a couple of years. Um, and then finally, I remember my mom calling me and telling me that my dad is going uh, to the hospital because he developed a blood clot in one of his kidneys and they had to dissolve it and get rid of it because it, they just, they couldn't save it. And I remember going down there, walking into the hospital and, and ready to tell them my two cents and what I, what, just let them have it. And I walked into the room 
and I saw my mom there crying over the bed and my father was just asleep. And at that point, I just stopped and I just said that I just need to fix this bridge and, and just try to move forward and not come in negative and just talk to them. And it took time. It took a couple of years of it. It was about a year after my father's surgery that I actually went back down to South Carolina with Jeff to Greenville. I'm in the kitchen with my mom and I was wondering where my boyfriend was and all of a sudden I just heard like, you know, this noise, like of clanking of glass. And I peek over the, the kitchen window that overlooks into the porch and there I see uh, Jeff and my father having a beer together, having a Corona and, and just chatting there on two little rocking chairs, you know, overlooking the backyard. And it was just weird because my last memory of that was me getting chased out by my father and then having to just run around and then call the police. So it was, I was shocked. I was amazed. I was happy. I wanted to cry. Like I, I, I had every emotion known to man and I got a beer and I went out there and I just sat down next to him and just started talking about life. I know that he feels very guilty and bad for everything that he did, but I've never actually formally gotten an apology from my father. I've never heard I'm sorry come out of his mouth, even though that's the one thing I would love for him to say. I know that he has said I'm sorry in his own way by showing me because he's not an affectionate man. He's very, you know, stoic and, and like he doesn't show his feelings. Um, so I know in his own way he has apologized to me and has, you know, been a completely different person from what he was when I was younger, for sure. You know what always surprises me about stories like this is how ignorant parents uh, still are. Does that surprise you too when you hear stories like this? There's so much information out there now for parents to know and learn about gay people and gay children that they just don't. Like ignorance this day with the internet and the connectedness that we all have in the world, ignorance is a choice is the way I look at it sometimes personally. And if you are ignorant in any way, it's your own fault for not learning about this when we have the entire internet at our hands and culture and the world's never been smaller. So it's frustrating for me to see Lucas's dad even be in a position that he would, he would do that. But it also teaches me patience because it's like, look, every single person on the planet is at a different place in some regard, you know, in terms of acceptance of some sort, you know, and you have to factor in religion, you have to factor in upbringing and location, geography, you know, all these cultural things that you are surrounded with, you know, so I, just on a personal journey, I have to learn to meet them where they are and be patient and understanding. And there are people who are far more understanding than I am. Uh, and there are people who are far less understanding than I am. So I can't expect, you know, everyone to be on the same page. So it's on a personal level, it's a good, um, you know, exercise and, or a good lesson in, in patience. Well, I really like, what you said about ignorance is a choice. You know, so often you hear, well, being gay is a choice. Uh, and so you're right. Ignorance is also a choice that you make. Uh, and, and I agree. Yeah. I think there's so much information, so many examples, so many um, sources to learn from that uh, there's no excuse for that today. Yeah, it shouldn't take 10 years to come around. To come you know, around, should... for sure. So talk about, you've got a new project coming up. Tell us all about that. 
So the, the program focuses on uh, stories of LGBTQ elders. And, uh, and because, you know, more than any generation before and more than any generation in the future, uh, people who are older have, you know, lived through a time when they were asked to keep it in the closet and keep it quiet uh, more than anyone else. So, uh, you know, in my own interest and, and you know, our, our history and our generation and community uh, from years past, uh, I really wanted to get their stories. And uh, something kind of frustrating but also enlightening, whenever we would get stories from elders just for I'm from Driftwood, I always ask a storyteller to share one story from their life uh, that's meaningful to them. And I could see it in their eyes and their struggle to think of a story that only sharing one story was very difficult for them because they have an entire life and they have so much history and so many stories to share. So it was really hard for these people to share only one story. So, uh, and they would try to cram their whole life story into this one five to six minute video story. Uh, and because of that, it became a difficult story to edit, you know, we, cause we really focus on a story arc, um, and try to think of a beginning, middle and end. So out of that, I was like, man, I really want to find a way to let, uh, people who are older share more stories. Uh, but it, the format didn't quite fit perfectly on I'm from Driftwood itself. So we're launching this initiative. Uh, it's called, what was it like? And all the stories will answer a question, you know, like, what was it like? Uh, and we've already been uh, speaking to people on the phone to kind of prepare them for the stories. Um, you know, so what was it like being transgender in, in the 1960s? Uh, what was it like, you know, going to, so this one woman uh, transitioned at 18, you know, and so this was in the, the 50s, uh, where she when she started transitioning, uh, you know, for someone to be that bold and brave and to even be aware of what that even means back then. But then you add this element of, uh, she went to, she was telling me on the phone, she was like, yeah, so I was, you know, 18, I was transitioning and I went to the draft board and I was like, what's a draft board? <laughs> like just, I didn't even know what that meant. And what that means is, you know, people in the sixties, they would go look at a, a piece of paper that had their social security number on it. And that means that they were drafted for the Vietnam war. And that was just like a common occurrence for, for youth in the day, you know? And so even that to me was a foreign idea, but then you add this element of being transgender. You know, if you're um, a trans woman, you know, you're born, you know, assigned male at birth, you're eligible to be drafted. But what if you're transgender? So that's something that never even crossed my mind. And, uh, and I'm sure it hasn't crossed a lot of people's mind, but uh, those stories are, are important to, to share and to collect. And that's only one story from her life. Fantastic. I cannot wait to hear some of those stories. Uh, and I can't think of a better way to reflect and learn about history than to hear stories from someone who was there and, and experienced it. Yeah, it, I, I, really cool. You know, I was, I was nervous starting to do it. I was like, is it going to work? I'm not sure. Like, it's, I, it makes sense in my head. Uh, but it wasn't until I had these pre-interviews on the phone with people that I'm like, oh my god, like they totally get it. They, you know, it, it helps them think of individual stories when we ask them to, to do it that way instead of you know, what was your life like? You know, it's more, what are these individual stories like? And it's, I mean, it's, we filmed one so far. I've had three uh, phone calls. We're filming another one today and another one tomorrow. And it's just going so well. Um, and it's, you know, these people are just incredible people. 
Um, so I, I can't wait to be able to share it with people. So if someone wants to make a video, uh, either for this new project or for uh, I'm from Driftwood, how do they get involved? Where do they go? They go to the website, I'mfromdriftwood.org, and they click on Get Involved. It's a button at the top, and then you click on Share Your Story. And once you're there, that allows you to submit a written story. But there's also a link on that page that says Share Your Video Story. So um, you click on that, and then there will be a form that helps you think of a story, and you submit that form, and I'll get a no notification, and I'll like review your, your story idea and then I'll email you and we'll kind of like, you know, help you hone in on your story. Because storytelling isn't, uh, the process is, it's not like a Q&A interview. Uh, you just think of a, a single story from your life and then you, you tell it. So there's a beginning, middle, and end. Um, there's a story arc. Um, but you don't need to be intimidated by that because I'm there to, to help you like through that storytelling process. Then we find a production team, a video team in your area um, to film your story. Fantastic. Seems pretty easy to me and a great way to contribute to not only inspiring other people uh, today, but also leaving a, a mark, a, a record on history for the future. I love it. And more importantly, where can people go to support the work that you're doing? Because you're running a nonprofit organization, right? This is all being funded by you and, and contributions you collect. It is. And we 100% rely on, on support from people and foundations. So if anyone out there, uh, can manage to support us. It's we are a nonprofit, so every donation is uh, tax deductible. Uh, and you just go to I'mFromDriftwood.org, uh, and then there's a donate uh, button at the top. Perfect. And if you missed that website, we'll have it on our own website at OutbeatNews.com. As usual, you can go there and find all of the links that we talked about. We've been speaking with the founder and CEO of I'm From Driftwood, Nathan Mansky, all the way from New York. Thanks again for being on the show and for sharing these amazing stories with us. Great. Thank you for having me. It was great to be back. I'll be back on Christmas night with another edition of Outbeat News in Depth. We'll share highlights from this year's Matthew Shepard Foundation Honors event and a special interview with singer-songwriter Matt Alber. Be sure to join us next week for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio 91. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. You can listen to our shows on demand on iTunes and on our website at OutbeatNews.com. And be sure to follow us all week long on our Facebook page and Twitter feed for the latest LGBT news from here in the North Bay and beyond.